0: Father, all that we are, all that we have, all all of our potential rests on Christ in us. And Lord, we thank you that we have this amazing privilege to be your children, to be called by your name, to be indwelled by your spirit, and Lord, the love that you have shed on us through your son shed blood is astounding and we thank you and we praise you for it there's nothing else that we can do we marvel at your goodness and your grace towards us lord today as we look into your word for a few moments may it be a time of refreshment time where your spirit can minister to the hearts in need, a time where we can make decisions about what our future might be and how to live lives worthy of your calling. Through Christ our Lord, amen. Please have a seat. So when we discussed 1 Timothy in August, I mentioned that I ran uh, track uh, throughout junior one of my favorite races was the, uh, the mile relay, and that's where each person would pass on the baton to the next runner. The last track events that I was at uh, was a very exciting one. Uh, it was a tri-county uh, meet. All of our passes were, were perfect. I ran uh, third because, you know, in a relay, the second fastest runs first, uh, this, the third fastest runs second. The fourth fastest, me, runs third. And the fast fastest? Anyway, that one, they run last. And, and we ran that, that mile in uh, three minutes and 48 seconds. Not too bad for a bunch of ninth graders. Uh, relays are exciting. Uh, they're exciting because they're all-out sprints. And there's always the possibility of even the favorites uh, not making it because they fail to pass on uh, the baton. And, and that's not as easy if you've done this before. You know what I'm talking about. It's not as easy as it might seem. You know, runners have to match speed in about a 20-meter uh, space. And uh, there's two kinds of passes. There's the, the blind uh, pass, and then there's a visual pass. Pass The blind pass is where, at a certain point, you just take off and run as hard as you can. You've got your your arm extended out and your hand as wide open as you can get, and you wait to hear the word stick. Now, the problem is, because all these uh, races are competitive, uh, there's a lot of people yelling stick at the same time. So you kind of have to know your co-runner's voice. And the, and it, it's a little bit tricky. The second one is visual, where you actually turn around and look. Slows you down, not as effective, a whole lot safer in terms of the the pass. But uh, you know, in the two thousand uh, Beijing uh, two thousand eight uh, Beijing Olympics, we had the four by one hundred relay. Men's and women's were heavy, heavy. Uh, medal favorites uh, gold medal favorites as far as that goes neither one of them got past round 1 heat 1 why they failed to pass the baton they just couldn't make it happen in chapter 4 of second timothy in just 3 verses after the ones I'm going to read in a moment paul tells timothy that he had fought the good fight he had finished the race, and Paul knew with certainty, absolute certainty, that it was time to pass on the baton. Today we come to Second Timothy chapter 4, 1 through 4, and some of the most solemn words in all of Scripture. So in reverence, let us read them. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears; they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Now, Paul's words are very, very clearly indicate what an ancient subpoena would look like. Uh, this is an official court command. This was Paul being. As, as solemn as he could, and this command was uh, requiring your appearance. And it was uh, from the loneliness of his uh, prison cell in Rome, and in view of I mean, the certain knowledge of his impending uh, death, Paul calls on Timothy to enter the courts of heaven, stand before God, and receive this solemn responsibility. Some of you have uh, sat on jury duty, and uh, so you understand this. But since the founding of the United States military, chaplains were exempt from this duty because it was inconsistent with their uh, role. Uh, That unique function uh, made that uh, participation something that uh, would not do the court well. But all that changed in 2008. And chaplains and medical officers and some of the other uh, professionals were to be included and not to be excluded. I love legalese. It's, 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 it's very interesting the the way that it's written. And so it was that I was called on to take part in a in a low level, at least a, I felt it was anyway, courts martial. I think they were just testing as to whether we would be a good fit or not. But in in these cases, when you're in a case like this, and if you've been in this case, uh, you understand that it's not just words. There can be deep and uh, abiding uh, consequences, and you feel the weight of that. And when your voice is one of the voices determining the outcome, you feel a sense of responsibility, grave responsibility. It is true that Scripture says that the government does not hold the sword in vain. Things happen. So if you've ever been to court, you realize, or watched Perry Mason for that matter, you, you realize there are some weighty moments that capture your attention. At one of those is the reading of the sentence. That's always a, a riveting. Another one is uh, when you're called before the judge and uh, either you listen to this or even more so you make this vow uh, that you will tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. I've said those words before and I felt them. Perhaps you have, too. I mean, we do have some uh, oaths, other areas of our lives, not too many we do in the military, uh, we do like an oath of allegiance uh, coming uh, into this country as a, when you're naturalized or something, or saying uh, something like, I do. Now, d- given that he, that is uh, Timothy, would stand in front of the judge of the living and the dead, Paul gave him five specific commands. Preach. Be ready, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Now, this is a a distillation of Paul's apostolic ministry. Paul was officially handing over the baton to Timothy. He wasn't making Timothy an apostle, but what he was doing was giving apostolic ministry to Timothy, one which is available to us today. But before we look at these particular commands, I want to look at the context in which Paul said them, because few other passages in all of Scripture, and we've seen this several times in this book of 2 Timothy. We see it elsewhere in the Bible where Paul uh, does this, but few other passages in all of Scripture describe more accurately the day in which we live today. Paul reveals this uh, unseen reality. I charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus. There are a few things that are more helpful uh, to us in the midst of pain and persecution and, and pressure than to realize that the things that we do for God are being witnessed by God and Christ. I mean, perhaps like Timothy we feel that what we do is insignificant, uh, especially against the, the seemingly overwhelmingly majority that's committed to evil and unbelief. Our, our voice is a whisper uh, in the uproar of voices that just evil uh, stuff. Many think that our day-to-day commitment is, to walk in Christ contributes nothing to the arrest of evil and the downhill slide that we're in. And our voice can't speak or have any impact against the agents of unbelief that we hear on every side. I think Timothy must have felt this way. I mean, I, it, he must have felt that he couldn't make any uh, headway against the tsunami of of evil. And so what Paul does is it's a wonderful thing. He he pulls back the curtain and he says he shows the invisible uh, world that our labor is in the power and the presence of God himself and Jesus Christ. Now our ministry oftentimes seems Uh, alone, and yet it's carried out in the full sight of Jesus Christ. He is the one who will judge all men before whom every heart is exposed, the one before whom everyone, each one of us, will stand and give an account. Now, for the believer, that accounting will be not in judgment, as others will, but nevertheless there. Not only that, but Hebrews 12, one tells us it's not just simply God and Christ. That would be certainly enough. But it says that we're also surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. I do not believe he was speaking strictly metaphorically. Uh, there's something to this that perhaps we don't fully understand. And so even in our finite observation of life, and we we feel oftentimes like we've been abandoned in our labors nevertheless we have not we're not only being observed but we're also being engaged we're also engaging in the most significant program the universe has ever known paul charged timothy in the presence of god and christ and by his appearance and kingdom a lot of the uh, commentators take this phrase, his appearance or by his appearing, to refer to the, the second coming. I think here in the context the reference is uh, better suited for his first coming. This is where we get our word epiphany. and it's the same term that Paul has already used in chapter one and verse 10, where he wrote, "And now has manifested through the appearance of our Savior Christ Jesus, The latter abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. When we live and work and talk as Christians, when we live righteously and justly, when we live lovingly and compassionately before men, we are engaged in that great program. When we involve ourselves in the hurts and the pains of others, when we're able to give a a word of comfort or relief, and certainly when we point people towards Christ as Savior, who is the only one who can change lives, we are involved in that greatest of all programs in not just human history, but in the history, I'm not even sure you can say the history of eternity. Eternity doesn't... uh, work that way. But nevertheless, Paul reminds Timothy of the most essential elements of a Christian witness in a dying world right here. He says, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with uh, patience, complete patience, and uh, teaching. When we read these words, preach uh, the word, uh, most of us think of a, a pulpit. Most of us think of a, uh, a church. Most of us think of a preacher on TV or perhaps behind the pulpit here. Even Chuck Swindoll, whom I regularly read and sincerely appreciate, says that this is the pastor's job. And, and we think that this involves the church and a platform and a podium, a pulpit. And while that's true in some measure, I, I have quite a different thought about that. I agree with Ray Stedman, who wrote, No, this word is not addressed to preachers only. It includes all people of God, for it does not merely mean to preach. And we've talked about this before. What it means is to announce, to proclaim, to set forth, the word is herald. You are a herald, and this is the message from God uh, that you deliver, and you make it known. Preaching the word is done over coffee. Preaching the word can be uh, have been done in your car on the way to church. Preaching the word is when you teach your children. Standing on the sidelines of a soccer match, texting, whatever, it doesn't matter. Any time, any place where the human heart is open, seeking, longing, hurting, you give the word. That's what he's talking about here. If we isolate this verse to mean to do what I'm doing right now, we fail to understand the impact in our individual lives. And we have to understand this is for each one of us. Preach the word. And the preaching of the word is not news about what we have to do for God. It's about what God has already done uh, for us. The news that God loves us and and pities us, for lack of a better word, and sees us in our hurt, in our agony, in our failure, in our weakness, but more than that, in our pride, in our hubris, and he looks over it, and he still loves us, and through Jesus Christ, he set aside the just sentence of death for us in order to give us, us life everlasting through our Lord and Christ. And so it's against this. It's it's this, this picture that we see of the gospel being presented throughout the world and what the Lord has done in preaching the word. He tells us, okay, how do we do this? What does this look like? Well, it's done in this way. First, be ready in season and out of season. What that means is, is be ready to do this, whether it's convenient or not convenient. Uh, This word uh, ready, it's, it's a great word. It means to to stand over. It would be used as a, a guard would be standing over a, a city or a treasure. It's even found in the use of, of a body guard. So this is someone who is watchful, who is alert, and who is ready when you see the opportunity to deliver the gospel. Now, it doesn't mean that we have to hammer everybody with the gospel. It doesn't mean that we bully people with the gospel. That's not what it means at all. What it means is is that in an understanding, when we understand that it is only the gospel that can free the human heart from our pain, from our sin, can free us from the guilt and the shame that we have brought in our own lives or that have been brought to us from external sources, that's when we are able to share that with others. It's more a matter of telling and sharing. It's not a matter of of forcing at all. Second, he says it's not just a matter of being ready, but you need to reprove. Now, this is an interesting word. I don't know why the translators have selected uh, this word because it doesn't mean what it sounds like it means like. I mean, in fact, if you look up reprove... In uh, the dictionary, what you will find is to reprimand. You will find censure. And uh, and I think that that's given uh, some people the, the feeling that they have the right to do this to other people. That's not what this word means at all. You know, it, it does, it's not a word that allows you to get in other people's uh, soup, as, as we would say. It doesn't mean that at all. What it means is that you are able to present the word of God in a systematic, reasonable, and compelling way such that it answers questions and it removes obstacles to the gospel. To carry on the court metaphor, it's the lawyer who presents such evidence in such a compelling way that it is clear, it is concise, and there's no room for other thought it's it's the presentation of the gospel that's what it that's what the word in the original means there's no room for rudeness it's a winsome approach it's it's an approach that is compelling however the next word does mean what we think the first word means and that's rebuke now that rebuke, I'm not going to say it. I'm going to say it because you all already know that, that I love words. But re, right, more at or to do again. We've seen this in a slew of words that I've delivered from the pulpit. Now, more again at what? At buking. <laughs> we don't use buke in uh, English. It comes to us from Old French, so I, I, I'm not even going to begin to... I don't know how to pronounce New French, much less Old uh, French. But it comes from the word where it it sounds like uh, butcher in a sense, but it means to beat. It means to chop. It it means to like chopping down a tree. So it's it's like more at, more at chopping. In fact, in French, in modern French... Uh, If you know French, you'll know where this word comes from then. It's the word that's used for a cricket bat, you know, (laughs) where you whack something. Okay, so some people who have fallen into sin and who are unrepentant. This is not the smoldering flax, right? This is not the injured person. This is the fist in the face of God. I don't care what God says. That's the person that you rebuke. And you use the word of God to do that. Uh, This is a person who's fallen into sin. They refuse to get out. And you're making an appeal using the word of God to help them to stop hurting themselves. And in hurting themselves, they're hurting those uh, around them. And then fourth... Uh, some need exhortation and encouragement. Well, p- people are just tired and and weary, and they need encouragement. And and when we, let me say something about encouragement here, because if you view encouraging somebody as saying, attaboy, go get them, you know, if you view encouragement, which it was encouraging, of course, but you know, watching watching the game last night. Everybody's shouting, and that's, that's encouraging. But that's not what this word means. That is not what this word means. It's something much, much more. In fact, this is the word that's used of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does not stand on the sidelines and say, Go, go, get it, do it. He doesn't do that. What does He do? He comes into your heart. He comes into your life. He is with you. He is with you in your pain. He is with you in your suffering. He is there. He is providing an encouragement that soothes the soul, that calms the fears, that embraces the brokenness. It's not simply a matter of saying nice words. It is being a part of someone's life. Finally, Paul wrote of the five. Don't read finally as the end. Not there yet. (laughs) This is of the five. Paul wrote, Be unfailing in patience and and teaching. Patiently keep on teaching. Uh, Christians must avoid what we have all seen. And and perhaps at some times maybe been um pulled into want to do that and that's to we need to avoid pressuring people into the kingdom of god that's not your job our job is not to uh, b- bring people to an emotional state so that they end up proclaiming that they may believe something that they actually don't that our job is to patiently teach it is not our job to bring people into salvation. It's not our job. We're to present the message of salvation. It is the job. It is the work of the Holy Spirit to bring them into the kingdom. And so we need to be patient and just continue to teach, continue to pray, For those who are lost, those some of you may have been praying for someone or those that you love for years. He says, be patient, continue to teach. And I've added here, pray, but that just makes sense uh, to me. Now, this passage begins and ends with a uh, warning to proclaim the truth. State it, announce it, proclaim it, then teach it. Make it clear. Now, all this, Paul said, is required, especially as we approach the end, because, wow, the conditions that we're going to be in at the end. It, it, we saw this in the opening words of uh, chapter 3, where he described the horrid condition that will come to the world. He's talking about that. Now, fundamentally, what is the cause for this? Yes, yes Satan. But what, what is the, let me say, the proximate cause to this? And that is a disdain for truth. Paul says, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own liking and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander into That is the day in which we live, the time in which we live, where as a society we do not endure sound teaching. Sound teaching leads to health. It leads to wholeness of spirit and soul and mind and body. And it permits us to live in peace with one another. Uh, But Paul says men and women are going to turn away from that. Uh, they turn away from the truth. Listen, they, this is, it's very specific what's happening here. They turn away from it. So you need to think, in essence, kind of a reverse repentance. They turn away from it. In other words... To state it differently, they don't even listen to it. They won't even give it an audience. They close their ears like children and say, I can't hear you, I can't hear you. And then since they don't listen to the truth, they look for others who will teach them what they want to hear. They want to be entertained. They want to find something new. They want constant affirmation. They can't bear contradictory thoughts. They can't teach the truth, they can't hear it, because truth itself is unacceptable. Why is truth itself unacceptable? Because if there's such a thing as truth, then there is a measure, a standard, in our case, a person who has established that as truth, and that would be God. And if you're forced to believe in truth, that means you're forced to believe in God. And if you're forced to believe in God, then you don't want that. They don't want that, I should say. So they teach lies and fantasies and philosophies that have no basis in history or in fact. In fact, they disregard history altogether. Their desire is for year zero, as Orwell wrote... It, it was not that so and so existed and that he was uh, good or that he was bad, he was simply erased. He never existed at all today we're we live in a world that's saturated by uh, falsehood. institutions have been failing uh, because of it, and that's why Paul sets forth here we must proclaim the truth as it is in Jesus. It's not simply that the church must stand. It it will. But when we see these things falling around us, um, you know, our temptation might be get involved in the wrong way, you know. Uh, I won't mention how we might do that, but they essentially align themselves with uh, political notions and ideologies. But Paul says that uh, through the word of God, that's not the most effective thing. The thing that God requires us is to preach the word, to announce the truth, to tell of the reality, make it clear, and spread the word, because all of heaven is watching. The program of God is committed to blessing and filling, fulfilling and carrying uh, our lives out in such a way that brings him glory. And in the final end of this, when all creation bows together before the Lord Jesus and declares that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And I began this message with the race as an all-out sprint, passing on the baton. But there's another side of this. and We see this in Hebrews 12.1 where it says, Let us run with endurance the race set before us. And in that, I want to introduce you to Cliff Young. Now, Cliff Young, some of you may remember this. In 1983, Cliff was 61 years old. He had no teeth. He was a potato farmer, and he was a sheep herder, born in 1922 in Australia. Now, his property, his family property, had about 2,000 acres. They couldn't afford any horses, and so he would herd the sheep by chasing them down himself. And uh, he was, you know, a regular Forrest Gump. So in in 1983, Australia decided that what they needed was an ultra-marathon. So we're going to run from Sydney to Melbourne. That's 543.7 miles the world's longest and toughest marathon. And on the day of the race, Cliff shows up at the registration table. Now, you got to see Cliff. You can look him up on the Internet. He shows up in his overalls and his boots, his work boots, with galoshes over, over his work boots. Staff didn't want to issue him a, a number because they were concerned about his health. You know, this is not something you can do. And, of course, the most elite athletes, they uh, thought it was some kind of a joke. And when the guns went off, they issued him a number, 64, I believe. And when the guns went off, the bystanders just laughed and and snickered because Cliff was left utterly behind in the dust as all these sculpted bodies in their lightweight running gear took off. And there he did what ultimately came to be known as the Young Shuffle as he was left in the dust in his galoshes and his overalls. But Australians, and the world for that matter, were stunned five days, 15 hours, and four minutes later when Cliff was the first who crossed the finish line in Melbourne. Winning the event. He didn't win by seconds. He didn't win by minutes. The second place runner was nine hours and 56 minutes behind. How did that happen? Everyone knew in order to win, you had to sleep. Nobody told Cliff. (laughs) So Cliff just ran. He never stopped. And he became an overnight national hero through his endurance. So the Christian life is about endurance, but it's also about passing it on. It's a combination of those things. Victory through endurance comes like a marathon. It also is like a short relay where you have to pass the baton. In Hebrews, just a little bit later, we read, Therefore... Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You and I are his joy. Therefore, glory in what God has called you to do. Run the race, pass the baton, and be faithful to his charge to preach the word. Father, we, we only have the strength to run short or long, because of the power of your Holy Spirit in us. And Lord, it is through your word that we know what to proclaim, that we know anything about who Jesus Christ is, about what he has done in our behalf, about how entering into a relationship with him gives us the power to set aside the sin that clings to us, Lord, like a stench, and yet you, you're able to cleanse us, giving us the fragrance of life. We thank you and we praise you for who you are, for what you have done in our behalf, through Christ our Lord, amen, that we might live. And I'll guarantee you, the Bible, while we see it as metaphorical uh, in our plane of existence, somehow, I don't think it's metaphorical in the unseen world. They feel it, and they feel it sharply. Father, we are thankful and grateful that you have given us uh, life and that you have given us a way to live. Lord, if it was just up to us, we would be going in, oh, uh, many, uh, many di- directions, uh, some even different directions in our own minds. And so we're, we're so grateful that you give us your word, you give us your spirit to illuminate it, and, uh, and we're just entirely indebted uh, to you for everything. And we give ourselves wholly and completely to you through Christ our Lord. Amen.